I felt trapped, I felt suffocated because I didn't feel as though I could be me. It was really hard to do because I don't think anyone had left so early before, especially on an account that was so prestigious. He would say, look, you've got to celebrate your difference and get comfortable being memorable because when you walk into a room, whether that's a classroom or whether it's the world of work and I'm in a boardroom, you're probably going to be one of the few women in the room. You're definitely going to be the only black one in the room. You're going to stand out, get comfortable with it. have to have a personal brand you have to be known well why is it they're going to pick Karen for that role what were you known for descending from Caribbean parents Barbados to be exact to finding her first love on the field the competition of running track another passion starts that you do think is going to be your life and career not advertising no what happens I'm here as a failed athlete <laughs> I thought I was going to compete for GB. It is humbling when you realise that a dream isn't going to happen. So then you have to pivot, you have to switch. He was really proud when he could see people from our background going further because it meant that we could all go further. Greetings, I'm Ashley Samuels McKenzie. And I'm Charles Parkinson. And welcome to How I Became where we unveil the unscripted journeys of inspirational figures. Okay, everybody, let's welcome Karen Blackett, UK President of WPP. Thank you. <laughs> and today we are gonna discover the, the beginnings of your story and to this incredible career journey. Um, and, uh, and as I said, this is the How I Became podcast. We have. Ashley Samuels McKenzie, one of the hosts, and myself, Charles Parkinson. The How I Became podcast, we share the stories of inspirational figures right from childhood and how they navigated life and career to get to the incredible position they're in. And, uh, and uh, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. And this is part one of Karen's story. So if you're listening today and you're like, Phew, this is a good story. I'm liking this. I'm learning. Then you can follow the podcast and hear part two when it comes out uh, later. In January. In January. <laughs> Potentially, yes. there's a few diary, <laughs> a few diary issues. Uh, issues to overcome, but it will be coming. And there are other great shows in, in between. So um, now that's that's out of the way. Uh, I think we can we can get into the how we begin every podcast. I'll hand over to. Ashley, vocalist, MC, lyricist, poet, and voiceover artist, Ashley Samuels McKenzie. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. So here's one of two poems of our session today. Seeing and hearing adverts as a child that she still remembers so vividly. Who would have guessed that she would grow to have so much influence in the advertising industry? Descending from Caribbean parents, Barbados to be exact, to finding her first love on the field, the competition of running track. Thinking at an early age, where is the reflected ad diversity, while also being forewarned as a young lady, that being a woman of her complexion, she will most definitely face adversity. We have a short time to tell the start of her story, so let's get into it smoothly. Introducing how I became Karen Blackett, president of WPP. Love that. That was great. Okay. Well done. 
So that's your life in a poem. Now mm -hmm. we will get into the, the story and uh, where we go back. And uh, your career is, is amazing. You, you are obviously, as we said, UK president of WPP. Um, and before then, UK CEO of Mediacom, the biggest media agency in the UK with billings over a billion. UK CEO of Group M, you've advised governments. You are Chancellor of Portsmouth University. Awards upon awards upon awards. Where does it all begin is where we're going to start. Mm -hmm. Take us back to Reading and tell us about the, the life at, at, at the beginning and your parents and, and what influence they had on you. So um, my mum and dad came to the UK when they were both 19. And they came from Barbados, as, as you mentioned. And uh, like first, most first generation immigrants, they sort of didn't know how the UK worked. They, it was totally different in terms of education, everything. So my mum came over and she trained to be a nurse. Um, and she trained in Edgware, then moved to work in the Royal Berkshire Hospital when she qualified, where she was a nurse for over 35 years. My dad came over and he worked as a bus conductor for a year in London. And he came over with his cousin, who was almost like his brother. And then he moved to Reading because he got an apprenticeship with um, what is now BT to become an electrical engineer. So I am the youngest of two daughters. Mm -hmm. I think what was quite strange at the time, especially because of the time and because of a strong West Indian parent, my dad was a massive feminist. He was a massive feminist because he had two daughters. He wanted to make sure that uh, we would be okay as we go out into the world. Mm. So uh, he wanted us to ensure that we could rely on ourselves and be confident in ourselves. So I can change a radiator because my dad used to tell me all the DIY tips. So, you know, he used to buy me a blowtorch for <laughs> birthday presents. So, you know, I can hang wallpaper, I can change radiators because my dad was really focused on me and my sister being yeah. self-sufficient. Can you turn the radiator off in here? Because it's <laughs> quite pretty hot, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else is I feeling I think I that. need to try and fix the aircon in here. Um, and what kind of things would would he say to you? Would he would he uh, you know, prepare you for life in, in any way? He did. He, um, look, the phrase that I heard a lot... Um, which unfortunately my son now also hears. And I think it's a Caribbean thing as well. So I was really fortunate to go to the 30-year um, memorial of Stephen Lawrence's um, death. And uh, his brother, Stuart, was giving a speech and he sort of said the same phrase that I'd been told and my son just sort of turned to look at <laughs> me. Because I do think it's a Caribbean phrase, which is two ears, one mouth, use them in that proportion. Mm. So really listen, really listen hard before you decide to speak up. So listen and learn. And then because he had two daughters and he was worried about having two daughters um, who, you know, were black in a country where we are a minority, he would say, look, you've got to celebrate your difference. There is no point trying to blend in because you're just not going to be able to so celebrate your difference and get comfortable being memorable because when you walk into a room whether that's a classroom or whether it's you know the world of war work and i'm in a boardroom you're probably going to be one of the few women in the room you're definitely going to be the only black one in the room so you're going to stand out 
get comfortable with it and use it. So I had that foundation from a very early age. I was very fortunate that I didn't try and shy away and blend in. And it was about, okay, people are looking, make sure they can now hear. I was going to say, what are you thinking as a, I don't know, six-year-old, seven-year-old hearing this? Are you... Th- What's going through your mind? I think it's like most six or seven year olds. You just think, oh God, here they go again. (laughs) And it doesn't resonate until you're older. It doesn't resonate until you're older. It was just something that we always heard. It was really celebrate your difference. And it was, well, what's he talking about? Because at that time when I was growing up in Reading... Reading was known as Mini Barbados because okay. lots of friends and family had come from Barbados or other West Indian islands. So there was lots of people coming in and out of our house who looked like me. Mm-hmm. So I was like, what, what are you talking about, difference? But we lived on a road, and my mum's still on that road now, which was, you know, full of people from different backgrounds. We were the first um, black family on the road. Um, but we had amazing, amazing neighbours. Um, and so we saw lots of different types of people. So I sort of saw it from that context. But in terms of close relations and family friends, everybody I knew that was this beautiful fruit salad of people, mm. which is a phrase I use a lot because that's what I'm used to, a beautiful fruit salad of mm. people. Okay. And um, Ash, you've got a couple of moments in, in Karen's life that stand out, right? 1987. Mm-hmm. I sat down to watch the TV. I didn't sit down to watch the TV. I was dragged in to watch <laughs> the TV by my dad because that was when Diane Abbott became elected to Parliament and she was the first black female MP to be elected. And my dad sort of said, look, you know, anything's possible. Look mm. what can happen. Anything's possible. So for him, that was a learning moment. It was... You know, the government was seen as one of the highest establishments in the UK from his perspective. And look, there was a black woman that had gone into government. She'd gone it, well, she wasn't in government, she was in parliament. So for him, that was something that me and my sister had to see. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every time Trevor McDonald came on the news at 10. Legend. Genuinely thought I was related to him. <laughs> <laughs> because the way my dad would go on and on about Sir Trevor. So uh, it was, he was really proud when he could see people from our background going further because it meant that we could all go further. Mm, definitely. And there's another one as well. Cricket. <laughs> Watching the West Indies beat yeah. England. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know, some of my earliest memories, really early memories are going to watch cricket and going to watch my godfather played, my dad played but going to watch the West Indies play. I'd come home from school and uh, I've had to do a Spotify playlist of my life. And one of the songs on there is the cricket theme song, yeah. which was on, <laughs> because that I used to hear that all the time. And uh, my dad would be watching the cricket. And at the time, you know, we'd have a cowbell that we could ring every time that there was a six. We'd have signs that said blackwash because we were winning. <laughs> Not anymore, unfortunately. So we're, we're here at the Festival of Marketing. There's mm-hmm. lots of marketing people, advertising people. Uh, where did your passion for advertising start? Because it was pretty young, right? Really young because um, 
where when I grew up, we sort of had, and I think, again, this is typical of most West Indian houses, we had a good room, which is the front room that had the telly in it, and then we all hung out in the back, and we were allowed in the good room when people were coming around to visit. And I used to absolutely crave watching the TV in the corner of the room, and I would really enjoy the ads probably as much if not more than the programs because right. let's face it the tv was pretty <laughs> in the 70s it wasn't <laughs> great so i would enjoy the ads probably more than the programs and so and that unlocked some sort of creativity in me it was all about well who are they trying to talk and even at a really early age who are they trying to talk to what are they trying to tell me why have they cast that person that's a stupid idea You're at a really early yeah. age wow. um and I'd sit there and I think that I I thought that I could come up with better ideas and even on the radio as well. And, you know, we used to drive to Tooting from Reading to go and see my dad's cousin, who he was a bus, bus, bus conductor with when they first came to the UK. So we'd do a family trip to, uh, to Tooting, we'd have the radio on and I'd be listening to the radio ads and trying to come up with what I thought were better ideas and I'm a child of the 70s and 80s and you know I really remember there's core ads I really remember you guys are too young but there was like R. White's Lemonade who was this guy in this sort of stripy pyjamas that would come down and secretly go into the fridge and take a glass of lemonade in the middle of the night and there was a really really it was a memorable jingle that went with it that I can still remember it and I'd see the Milky Bar Kids ads for Milky Bars. And even then, and I can't, I must have been, I don't know, maybe I was at secondary school, I don't know. But thinking, why is the Milky Bar Kid really Aryan? I remember thinking, why has he got blonde hair? Why is he white? Is that because of the product? Does that mean that nobody black could ever advertise that? Wow. I remember thinking at a really early age, mm. and probably because of what I was surrounded by, and thinking, well, hang on, I eat Milky Bars. It's literally, you know, my family, our friends have mortgages, they've got cars, we need loans, we need clothes. But I wasn't seeing any of our stories reflected in those brand stories. Mm. So I'd come up with my own ideas as to how I thought I could sell things and brands and products to family and friends and think about things that I knew and I saw in terms of their stories that I could put in a brand story. So, mm. and that was from a real, and I didn't know about brands. I just knew of products. I didn't know about brands at the time. I just knew about products. Mm. And I just knew about stories. And you know, the world of marketing is about brilliant storytelling. And the best marketing is when you have a true consumer story in a brand story, and I couldn't see that in what I was seeing. Mm. Well, it's funny at this age, obviously you've got no idea about industries or None thinking about all. work or yeah. you just, this is just a passion for yours. But another passion starts that you do think is gonna be your life and career, not advertising. No. What happens? What I'm here it? as a failed athlete. That was, my, <laughs> that, was my, that was my passion. I thought I was gonna compete for GB. I thought that I was gonna be you know, I was a sprinter, so I was a 100 meter, 200 meter runner, third leg runner on the re four by 100 relay and a long jumper. I competed at a very high standard. I sort of joined my dad, 
encouraged myself and my sister to join Reading Athletics Club. So we joined Reading Athletics Club and it was my joy. It was my absolute passion and I was good at it. And uh, that's what I thought I was going to do. That's what I thought I was going to, uh, I was going to be an athlete. You, how many training? Was this really serious? Were you yeah, really yeah. thinking? From a young age, I'd be off doing all of the fixtures. I'd be training three times a week. So, oh. and all the way through, so through school and everything, I was doing it. And in college as well, so when I was doing my A-levels, um, but I was peaking. So I was getting to the point where, you know, I was a senior and the minors were coming up and they were as fast as me and they were starting to beat me. And I'd practice over and over and over again, but I was peaking, I'd plateaued at the 100 and 200. Um, what was your time then? Oh God, it was under 12 seconds. Oh, so I was, nice. I was quick. Wow. But what uh, are you thinking at this point where, where you're starting to see people go faster and, and you, you slowly starting to think, oh, this life I thought I was going to have of going towards the Olympics is Well, is they tried over. to move me up to 400 metres. That's hard work. It's <laughs> <laughs> is really hard work. And uh, that, I mean, that is genuinely 400 metre runners. I take my hat off to them because that is, you know, 200 metres I was good because I could hold back for a bit and then <laughs> explode towards the end mm -hmm. 400 meters you cannot do that you really can't and that is pure fitness pure stamina and speed and that's hard mm -hmm. so they tried to move me up to the 400 wasn't happening really wasn't happening so I uh, I had to retire my athletics career but I went on to see people that were coming up who were younger than me go on to be amazing so mm. Donna Fraser who's a really good friend now went on to compete in you know for GB and compete in the Olympics a good friend is Denise Lewis and she's just a legend they were so 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 much better than me so it is humbling um, when you realize that a dream isn't going to happen mm. um, so then you have to pivot you have to switch mm. and what were some of the life lessons you learned from training in athletics I think I took a lot of um, what I did in training and my focus on sport into my working life. Mm. I, I really did. So I was taught to practice. Um, so I would practice my start. I could win the 100 metres if I got a good start because it was all about my start. The first 30, I was explosive and it was about hanging on to the end line. So I'd practice over and over on my blocks. So... I don't go into a meeting, I don't go into a presentation, I don't go and do something without practicing because it's, it's what I've learnt and been taught to do. Also a focus as well, so I think again as an athlete you've got to make sure that you get rid of any distraction and really focus on what it is and focus on your game and focus on what you have to do and not listen to the noise which you've got no control over and I think it's the same with work we have to pitch a lot on the agency side and there's always rumors about well this agency is going to win it because they've got a relationship with this person or they've got this experience although that always happens and you can't let it distract you you've just got to focus on your own game so it's taught me about focus and it's also taught me about losing as well because mm. I didn't win all <laughs> the time even though I practiced really hard and I'd go into a race with my game plan. When you lose, it 
I analyse myself. What what did I do wrong? What could I what could I have done better? Mm. So for me, feedback is a gift. So I I seek feedback. I remember my dad standing at the end of a long jump pitch with a camera and constantly shooting and taking photos and we'd then have to go off and wait for them to be developed and then come back again. <laughs> and he'd look at my technique, my hitch kick, and he'd look at it to see if I was slightly leaning on one side or on another side. So he'd give me that wow. feedback. So for me, feedback's about me getting better. Mm. So again, I take that into my working life as well. Brilliant, love that. Are you an agency or brand that would like to work with our production company, Unity and Motion? If so, contact us at unityinmotion.com. We produce commercials and social content for brands such as Chanel, Amazon, Reebok, Harrods, The Ritz, and many more. Now back to the show. So someone who's reached very high heights in the industry, you must have started at a very high position in your first job. What was it? I was a direct response media planner and buyer at uh, the agency. Actually, it's now Wavemaker, but I, it was CIA when I started, so it wasn't part of um, uh, WPP. And I actually, when I went into the industry, it was after rejection, after rejection, after rejection. Because How I'd long? Been tr- oh, my God. About a year? About a year? Because I had a the break between finishing university, trying to get a job, applying for every graduate training program there was on the marketing side, getting rejections, trying to get in on the ad agency side, getting rejections. And in the end, it was an, a small ad in the independent newspaper of all places, which, again, learning to pivot, because I was getting rejection after rejection, not getting in which was advertising for a trainee media auditor. I had no bloody idea what that was, (laughs) but it had the word media in it. And thankfully, my sister's friend who she was at um, Kingston with had gone in to be a junior brand manager at Unilever. So I rang her up and said, right, what's this media auditing thing? And, you know, I, I'd subscribe to Media Week and I'd subscribe to Campaign. I'd go along to WH Smith and get my copy and read all about the industry. So I sort of knew about this media audit, but I didn't know what it was. And I, part of my degree, I did a geography degree, but part of what I did was a statistic module to go with it. And uh, I thought, right, I'll use the stat side of my degree and applied for this role. And at the time... Um, the media auditors were part of the media agency. So it was Billets, which wasn't called Billets at the time because it was part of CIA. And I went in to be interviewed. Uh, Andy Perch, um, who is still a media auditor, um, he thanks himself for my career. <laughs> um, he spotted something in me and said, actually, I think you'd be better at the planning and buying side. So he sort of referred me up to a different part of the agency and I had to go in an interview again at that different part of the agency and that's how I got him. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't on the ad agency side. I wasn't an account manager. I wasn't a creative. I literally was pivoting to try and get into the industry to then learn about it and then decide where I go. So then you get this job, you enter the office and look around. 
How many people looked like yourself? Three. <laughs> so it was myself, my immediate boss, who wasn't as part of the interview process at all. So I met the person that would be managing me the first time I walked in on my on day one. Uh, so Colin Gillespie and then um, Michelle on reception. And those were the three black people in an agency at the time. It must have been about 300 people. So it was a top three agency. Did, did the, the, the comments and, and, and phrases your parents used to share with you sort of come into reality at that point? And Without a doubt. And that's when, you know, when you're young and you're growing up, you ignore your parents. <laughs> I'm hoping Isaac never listens to this podcast, <laughs> my son. You ignore what they say. And it's only later on that you really appreciate what they were trying to tell you. And I really appreciated it. My first proper job, you know, I'd had Saturday jobs before, but they were in Reading, so the workforce was quite diverse. My proper job, this was going to be my living, this was going to be my career, it absolutely resonated, and it was ringing in my ears. And of course you're new, and you've got to learn about something new, so I absolutely was doing two ears. I had no mouth, it was all two ears <laughs> at the time, because it was really about absorbing everything and really trying to learn. Did you have certain ambitions at this point? Were you thinking, hmm, WPP, I'd like to be president <laughs> one day? <laughs> or what was going through your mind? No, it was, I was thankful I'd got into the industry because it had been so hard to get a foothold in. And it was just about, my mum and dad were convinced I was going to be unemployed. They, really? they were convinced Why? because they didn't know anything about the creative industries I and the see. advertising industry. And again, like most first generation immigrants, they want their children to have a role and a job which is seen as high standing back home and has got longevity to it. So an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer. So all the things in terms of studying hard and being able to do those sort of roles. The creative industry was totally alien to them. That wasn't anything that we didn't know anybody. That ha and look, the advertising industry was not a big thing in Barbados. Really, <laughs> so they didn't know anything about it. So, and they were concerned. They were really worried that I'm going to be first, you know, last in, first out. If ever there's redundancies, it's going to be me first. They were really worried about it. So me getting in was just about learning as much as I could because I didn't know how long I was going to be there. Mm. I didn't know if I was going to get found out. So how long was I going to be there? So it was learning as much as I could. Well, eventually you spend some time there and eventually you come to a, a sort of decision about actually wanting to, to move on, which yeah. I think probably a lot of people here can relate to. How were you feeling at that time there? And Do you know, I didn't want to go. I, d I genuinely didn't want to go because it was an amazing agency at the time. I was working with amazing people that I was learning from, but it was what I thought you had to do in order to progress your career, to okay. move to another job. How long had you been there at this point? Uh, three years. Okay, and you'd risen up to, to where by this? Oh, I think I was a senior, a senior planner buyer. And I thought, okay, in order to get a manager role, you've got to move. Um, and you've got to have more on your CV. So I moved to Zenith, which was the biggest agency, media agency at the time. And I moved to work on 
an account which was a prestigious account, which is all full circle, which was BT. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved to work on that account because it was the only account that at the time Zenith had that was a planning account. Zenith was known for buying only, and this was their planning account. So it was really prestigious. And I went to become a senior manager. Um, and I partly I went because of um, a brilliant strategist, a legend, a guy called Andy Tilly, who when I met at interview stage, I thought I'd learn loads from him. So I wanted to really learn more about the craft of planning and strategy. And he was brilliant. And then I got to Zenith and at the time, and it's I'm sure it is not like this now at all, but at the time, that one prestigious account, there was a way that you had to do things. There was a way that you wrote documents. There was a way that you, you know, did a contact report. There was a way that you put presentations together. And it didn't allow me room for that creativity. Mm. It didn't allow me room to sort of feed in the bit that I thought I could be additive. Yeah. And it sort of tried to turn you into a clone. So if you worked on that account, there was a certain way of doing things. And it just didn't appeal. It just, I felt, I don't know, I felt trapped. I felt um, suffocated Mm -hmm. because I didn't feel as though I could be me. And I remember speaking to a friend who was working at another agency and she was saying, how's it going? I said, I'm not enjoying it, but I'm going to stick it out. I've got to get a year on my CV at least before I move. Because at that time, you're thinking about how does it look so that, you know, you can go on to the next thing. And I remember her saying to me, and it was Claudine Collins, who is the um, chief client officer at Essence Medicom, her saying to me, why don't you just come into the agency I'm at to have a chat? Just come in and have a chat. Just, Just talk to them and, you know, get some advice from them. And I was like, well, I can't leave. I've got to stick it out. And she said, just come in and have a chat. And my going in and having a chat was three people interviewing me. It felt like a firing <laughs> squad. It was not a chat. It was a full-on interview. So I hadn't rehearsed and prepared for that because mm. I thought I was going in and having a chat. And actually what I saw, they were three very different people as well, which I loved. They were really different in terms of background, personality, skill set. They were really different and they really liked each other as well. They really did. Um, And that was attractive. I wanted to be part of that gang. So I sort of left that interview, which I didn't know I was having an interview, and thought, I think I actually really want to join them. And then I had a couple more interviews and then I resigned at Zenith. So I'd been at Zenith six months maybe less was that tough to do yeah it was really hard to do because i don't think anyone had left so early before Mm -hmm. especially on an account that was so prestigious Mm -hmm. and i think i I was exhausted the day that i resigned because i think i had to resign about five times to different people (laughs) because no one could understand why i wanted to leave the biggest agency in the UK to go to what they described as a backstreet corner shop (laughs) agency that wasn't even top 20. They couldn't understand it. And I have such an appreciation of 
starting at a company and an organisation when it's small and where you have to fight to get onto pitch lists, where you have to fight to be present, where you have to fight for meetings. And I never take that for granted because I always remember the arrogance at the time of a very big agency mm. thinking what on earth could attract you from something smaller. Mm. And But I saw a bunch of misfits at the agency that I joined, I really did, who were talented and humble and really uh, who I could learn from and most importantly where I thought I could be myself and not have to cover. Excellent. We've been, we've been hit with time. Cool. Can we do one more question? Yes. So we wanted to do <laughs> like a key takeaway for people here listening. So we've got a question for that. What are the three things that had you not done would have kind of adversely affected your career progression? Look, I think the, the biggest thing, I, I do talk about this a lot, is I found cheerleaders. Loads of people call them mentors, but I call them cheerleaders. So people that know me, really know me, know my insecurities, know what I'm really good at. And so in the moments where I'm having imposter syndrome and self-doubt, which I still do, I still do, they give me the verbal slap that I need to mm. say, just carry on. Mm. And they're the ones that help me fly higher. So that's, I would not be where I am without them. I would not be where I am without having people in the rooms that I didn't have access to speak up about my talent. So that's a sponsor. Mm. So people that were in those decision-making rooms, in those on those decision-making boards, advocating for me to get roles. How do you get them to do that? You've worked with them before. So mm. that's it. You you have to, it, it's got to be, it's got to be authentic that you've worked with them on a project or a piece of work, that they know how you work, they know your talent, they know what you can do, they know what could possibly happen if you're put in a role. So it can't be somebody that doesn't know you. It has to be somebody, in my view, that knows how I work. Mm. So they can speak up authentically for me in a room that I don't have access to, but speak about what I'm capable of. And in order for them to be able to do that, you have to have a personal brand. You have to be known. What, well, why is it they're going to pick Karen for that role? What is it that made sure that Karen's in that team? You have to have a personal brand. We work with brands all the time. Mm. And so having a brand for yourself and knowing what it is that you're good at, and you could be good at loads of things, but having a personal brand is really, really important. What were you known for? What was your thing that people Head knew? performance coach. I'm all about performance. Mm. So it's performance of my clients' business, performance of my team members. I have a coaching style of managing. So it's, it's all about outcomes and results. I'm really focused on that. Um, and that's how I sort of look at my clients' business and their work. And that's how I look at my team's work. It's what are we delivering? So it's all about performance and a coaching style of getting there. Love that. There's some great advice great there. Great advice there. Great advice there. So, so to end, we've got one more thing. Just one last thing. And by the way, if you do want to hear part two, <laughs> you can Subscribe. tune in to the, to the podcast. So we're on TikTok, 27,000 followers or Instagram. You can find us too. Here's the poem. Here's the poem I sign off on. And I've created this as we've been going through this oh, conversation. Wow. Not just a voice in advertising, but handy with tools and radiators. <laughs> Celebrating the difference as a foundation. 
seeing a fruit salad of community and neighbours. Memories of, good, of the good room celebrating the pride of the cultures achieved. A young innovator improving brands, creating a new world around how ads should be seen. Facing a plateau was the finishing line for her athletic dream, but still utilising the learning points in her life to better herself and bring the best to work in any team. To be determined to find your dream position, you could find the right bridge. Who knows, one day we may also see a new complexion for the Milky Bar Kid. <laughs> That's brilliant. Amazing. Thank you. That's everybody. Thank you. Thank you.